Please Leave podcast, home to stories that haunt. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence or explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. You know how kids mishear words and then spend their childhood mispronouncing and misunderstanding the word much to the delight of every adult with half a heart? Like my cousin who said he wanted to learn to speak spinach, or my friend's kid who calls shampoo shampoop. Well, my adorable misunderstanding turned into a full-blown childhood terror when I was five, and my mother offhandedly said, let's put that away for the time being. I can't begin to remember what she'd specifically been suggesting we put away at the time, but it's safe to assume I'd been getting a little over-enthusiastic with some art supplies or something, and she'd simply suggested we put them away for a while, and revisit them later when I wasn't bouncing off the goddamn walls. But that innocent statement started my years-long obsession and perpetual fear of the time being. Well... Fear might be too strong a word, but I was definitely preoccupied and permanently annoyed by the time being. Why did I have to put my things away for the time being? Why couldn't the time being get his own watercolor paints or Legos or books? Why was I the one who always had to sacrifice my most precious things? And what exactly did he want with them? When mum agreed that it was time to take the supplies back out to play with them again, I'd study the shallow parts of paint and the pages of my beloved books for any signs that the time being had used or abused them and I was always able to find evidence that he had. The discs of color were always a hair thinner, the pages dog-eared in places that I hadn't been responsible for, and I loathed the time being and his pesky insistence that I put my things aside for him. Then one day, the time being kicked it up a notch and started dictating my free time activities too. Honey, why don't you go outside and play for the time being? Mum had asked when I'd gone antsy while waiting for my grandmother to show up for lunch. No! I'd screamed as loudly as my developing lungs would allow. The inappropriately defiant response had landed me in my room for a timeout instead, but that was fine with me. I would have rather rotted away in solitude than play outside for the time being's amusement. I wasn't a puppet to be manipulated for the whims of my invisible stalker. And thus began my brief stint as a juvenile delinquent, fueled purely by my opposition to the time being. My mother's requests on behalf of the time being felt constant. Let's use this playground instead, just for the time being. Honey, let your father hold that for you, it's just for the time being. You can use the red one for the time being. Just please, wear the shoes, I know they're a little too small, It's, it's just for the time being. My tantrums escalated as the time being's demands got steeper and more frequent until one day I'd finally had enough and had to put my foot down once and for all. My mum and my favourite aunt had taken me shopping for some summer clothes as I'd shot up several inches over the school year and was in desperate need of t-shirts that didn't fit my seven-year-old frame like crop tops. While we shopped, they'd kept me motivated but subdued by promising I could ride something from the weird collection of mechanical animals that can be found at the center of every mall at the end of the day. 
It was all I could do to keep my shit together in anxious anticipation of the blissful moment that it was time to mount one of their sticky fiberglass forms while my mum pumped enough pennies in the machine to sponsor a needy family for a month just so I could pretend to enjoy the most imperceptible jostling of a dog wearing a police uniform or a bear driving a race car for two or three minutes. I'd kept up my end of the deal. But just as my aunt was paying for her purchases at the last store before it was time for me to ride the Pink Eye Express, my aunt's pager lit up with an SOS call from my older cousin, delaying my elation for an indeterminate amount of time. Sweetie, she'll be right back, my mum promised, as the wailing of an overstimulated, overtired, and unsatisfied young person started its screeching exploration at the back of my throat. Let's just look at these book bags for the time being. The scream exploded out of me with so much ferocity, I swear the entire population of the mall fell silent for fear of the demon banshee that had been unleashed near the food court. Why do you care so much about the time being? The time being doesn't need a book bag. My tantrum reached a crescendo the moment my aunt re-entered the store, and the two most important women in my life stood completely stunned as I ranted and bemoaned the time being with enough depth of emotion I could have landed a roll in steel magnolias. Honey, what are you talking about? My mother took my shoulders to steady me as she tried to understand the exact brand of mental breakdown her tiny child was experiencing in the entrance of the Westfield shopping center. I'm sick of the time being. You always want me to do things for the time being and I'm sick of it. He's a rotten old time being and needs to get his own mummy and his own toys. My mother blinked several times, then turned to my aunt, and there were a couple of seconds where their faces were frozen in contemplative limbo before they both crumpled into absolute hysterics as they finally understood what I was saying. My crying then shifted into embarrassed hyperventilation for a few minutes as my family members laughed at my adorable misunderstanding, which was followed by a brief lesson in the figures of speech and the complications of the English language, which I didn't comprehend because I was so awash in the relief that the time being wasn't real and would no longer be plaguing my life. I could go back to being an only child whose only competition came during the occasional visit from a cousin or neighbor's kid and could sleep well in my twin-sized bed, resting assured that nary a being would have access to my treasures or personal time ever again. But what the seven-year-old me didn't know was that the time being was actually very real and would return in due course to collect what has always been his. It all started fairly innocently at work one day. It was a Wednesday morning, I walked into the office plex that had been my 9am destination for going on four years, and took the elevator to the seventh floor like I had thousands of mornings past. As I drifted by my supervisor Jenna's desk, she poked her head over a cubicle wall and asked, Hey, do you have a sec to chat about the Dre report? Uh, sure, I said, and balanced my Starbucks on a cubicle wall just inches from her face. Oh, sweet, she replied with way more enthusiasm than the Dre report deserved. So, I was thinking about it, and I think it would flow better if we move section G to just before section C. I stared at Jenna for several seconds as I tried to catch up to what she was saying, I took a huge swig of my coffee before clearing my throat and explaining, <clears> throat> uh, 
I turned in the Dre report a week and a half ago. Jenna cocked her head in response, then flashed her patented supervisor smile and announced, Oh, you're such a crack-up. She swiveled toward her co-worker Jeremy, who hadn't once acknowledged a thing Jenna had ever said, and said, Isn't Jamie the funniest? Then back to me, You'd definitely win the Office Comedy Award. No, seriously, I turned that in like two weeks ago. My arms were growing tired under the weight of my packed lunch and grande iced coffee and I shifted my weight toward my desk to give her the universal sign for, can I go now? Um, Jamie, I just assigned the report yesterday. She cocked her head in the opposite direction and into her, I'm about to say something that will borderline ruin your day angle, but she remained silent as she waited for me to explain how I'd submitted a report over a week before it had been assigned. Huh. I ran through my memory of barely proofreading the email that attached the report before CCing our boss and our boss's boss and then hitting send so I could rush out and wouldn't miss the two-for-one special on Mondo Diablos at Riley's with my work pals. I- I- I'll be right back, I tossed at Jenna, hurried to my desk and woke up my computer as I sat down. Once I was logged in, I navigated to my email sent folder and was prepared to scroll back to the day I was sure I'd sent the report but my hand froze at the top of the screen as my cursor hovered over the last date that I'd sent an email, which would have been the day before. I tried to scroll up, but I was definitely at the top of the sent box and hadn't accidentally scrolled down to reveal a date from the past. According to the last email I'd sent, I had traveled back in time by two weeks. Impossible. I murmured to myself and pulled out my phone to check that day's date, which flashed on the home screen as soon as I unlocked it. But my phone slipped from my hand and clattered to my desktop as I swiveled in my chair towards my closest office mate, an expertly uptight and impeccably accurate 30-year-old woman named Peg. I cleared my throat, having learned too many times that Peg has a hair trigger of a startle reflex and asked my unfortunate neighbor for the day's date. She rolled her eyes, which was a standard greeting for me, and chirped, May 11th before snapping her attention back to her computer and resuming her brusquely passionate dance with her mouse and keyboard. I leaned back in my chair, ran my hands through my hair, and stared, stunned, at the off-beige of my cubicle while I tried to understand what exactly was going on. After a few solemn beats, I returned to my computer, pulled up an internet browser, and confirmed via news source after news source that it was, in fact, May 11th. The staggering reality that I was grappling with, of course, was that I had already lived May 11th, exactly two weeks to the day earlier. I thought back to my first May 11th, which was just as unremarkable a day as any other, and tried to recall every possible detail, starting with the moment I woke up to the moment I went to sleep that night. I have a a pretty incredible memory, which is how I'd landed a career in data reporting in the first place, and so was able to recollect a good portion of my activities that day. I got to the near end of the day when my weekly team meeting had been scheduled, and I had asked about the important new client meeting that had been on the horizon for a while, but had yet to be confirmed. Oh, great question, Jamie. My boss's boss chimed in. I got an update from their rep this morning. We're about two weeks out, so let's just revisit everything we've been working on for the time being. A wave of frosty shock rippled through my frame as the memory concluded and the name of my childhood nemesis echoed in my head. The time being. No fucking way. 
I wasn't sure what to do with myself or the absurdity of my situation, so I just sat, shaking my head slowly in disbelief and searched for an answer where there was none. We good to get going, Andrea? I jumped with half a shriek at Jenna's face hovering over my shoulder and nodded in confirmation as I clutched at my heart to slow its sudden escalation. Brilliant! Jenna shot an awkward finger gun in my direction and stalked off to find another subordinate with fresh nerves to grate. Once Jenna was gone, I did the only thing I knew how to do, which was every single thing I had already done on May 11th, 14 days earlier. Well, at least I have half-price Mondo Diablos to look forward to in a few days, I muttered to myself as a pep talk, and then got to work. The strangest thing about the following 13 days was trying to recreate each second to match the way I'd lived them two weeks before. I've read enough science fiction to know that changing the past can have catastrophic consequences, and I was very conscious that any variation from my previous routine could cause the rise of a future fascist regime, or expedite climate change, or delay Taylor Swift's next album. Luckily, I am a simple man and a lover of routine, so it wasn't hard to recollect the exact choices I'd made before, to the point that I had sunk into a low-grade depression by the end of the 14 days at just how routine and predictable I'd become. I sighed a massive sigh of relief when, at the end of the 14 days, the world was still intact and fascism hadn't gained a stranglehold on the globe. And then an even bigger sigh of relief the next day when I was able to move on and into the future as I'd intended to do two weeks before. And things went back to normal for several months after that. I started taking fish oil after scanning endless Reddit threads about people who had had similar experiences to mine and the consensus seemed to be that I'd likely experienced an episode of sustained deja vu or derealization brought on by stress or a lack of fatty acids. I got a brain scan to rule out epilepsy and then moved on with my life. And then, around seven months later, the time being submitted his next demand. To combat the monotony I'd realized I'd sunk into after I was forced to live 14 days of my life twice, I decided to join the dating app my best friend was forever harassing me to try. Much to my absolute surprise, <laughs> I met someone I really liked almost immediately and we started seeing a lot of each other. Her name was Mel and she was as funny as she was kind and also preferred a slow and simple life but in, in the most abundant way possible. Everything was easy between us, and we talked like the world would end before we managed to say everything we wanted to say to each other. And at the end of the five months, I was falling for Mel with terminal velocity. Mel, on the other hand, was reaching the point in dating where one party has a crisis and leaves the other confused and shivering from the unfulfilled promise of a perfect love. Mel put the brakes on our burgeoning love at my favorite sushi restaurant and I swear I could hear the oxytocin leaking out of my brain and onto the trendy bamboo floor as she said the six worst words in the English language. I just need time to think. Three days later, I was at brunch with my best friend Liz, drowning my sorrows in warm breakfast alcohol and regaling her with the humiliation of having my almost girlfriend put our relationship on indefinite hold before my dragon boat had even arrived. So, have you seen her or, or heard from her? Liz asked and topped off our drinks with a slosh of the murky carafe. I shook my head and downed half of my glass. 
not a word. Ah, Liz commiserated. What are you supposed to do? It's so cruel. You, you were so good to her. And now you just hope you see her or hear from her soon. And you just have to, like, put your life on pause and hold your breath for the time being. Right. I'll, I'll be right back. I stood up from the table and started a beeline to the bathroom as my body made an emergency announcement that, while our drinks might have been bottomless, my bladder was not. I felt a strong tickle in the back of my throat as I neared the bathroom door, and by the time I was done relieving myself, I had to steady my body against the wall because the tickle had turned into a full-blown coughing fit. But instead of expelling whatever was irritating my windpipe, it only seemed to get worse, and a minute later, I realized that my airway was starting to constrict. My first instinct was the same as every first instinct of every choking person before me, and I started to slap the wall and uselessly claw at my throat as my air supply dwindled. As I took a rapid handful of two small breaths that I was sure would be my last, Lizard's words cut through my panic with life-saving clarity, and I was able to calm myself down enough to think clearly for the couple of seconds I had before I'd lose consciousness. I was shocked I'd missed it at the time, but Liz had said, I'd have to hold my breath for the time being. That fucker was taking my breath away, but why? What did I need to do to get it back? Did I need to see Mel? Liz had said I'd have to hold my breath until I saw her, right? I dug in my pocket for my phone as the edges of my vision started to ring with a fuzzy darkness, said a prayer that FaceTime would suffice, and pressed the button to connect with Mel. I would say that I had held my breath in anticipation of picking it up, but it wasn't up to me in that moment, and after the four longest rings since telecommunication was invented, Mel's sweet face was suddenly filling the frame of my dwindling consciousness. Jamie? She asked, tentatively, and peered into her phone to get a better look at what exactly was happening on the other side of our call. My airwaves opened so rapidly and so completely, I stumbled backward with relief and hit the floor with a thud. The trajectory of my fall caused me to toss the phone in the opposite direction, and I could hear my phone's disconnect sound echoing off the tiled walls as it landed, face down in a suspiciously moist corner. Liz was devastated when I faked the onset of some kind of food poisoning so that I could go home and process what had happened. But she brightened slightly when I recommended she reach out to our most alcoholic friend to come help her finish the second craft she'd just ordered. I'm convinced that the most powerful survival instinct is the human capacity to rationalize and compartmentalize the dangers most present. The desire to cling to normalcy is a powerful blinder, and I was quickly able to convince myself that I just had an allergic reaction to the walnuts in my waffles, and so swore them out of my diet rather than entertain the insane notion that my childhood boogeyman was bearing down on my life again. That rationalization allowed for things to return to normal for another two months, until my innocent plans to meet a friend for a run went sideways. My pal John and I had made a pact to start running together on Sunday mornings at 8am, and John had called at 7.45 that morning to let me know that he couldn't make it. Any chance you're free this evening? Maybe around 6.30? He asked. Well, sure, I said, but I'm all stretched and ready to go. I wasn't ready to let him fully off the hook for cancelling at the last minute, so threw in the guilty jab. Maybe you could jog in place for the time being, John joked, and we said our goodbyes. You'll never guess who was forced to spend the next 11 hours jogging in place in their flat until John arrived that evening for our scheduled run. Three months after that, 
I started having stomach issues, most likely from the stress of an unseen presence lurking and waiting for the secret words to summon him to wreak havoc on my life. But I'd called my mum to discuss my symptoms, convinced it was a food intolerance instead. I have a doctor's appointment in two weeks, I explained, and was thinking I could try the anti-inflammatory diet Aunt Linda said had worked for her. Oh, honey, just wait to see the doctor, she pleaded in her motherly tone. Otherwise, you'll be living off plain rice and water for the time being. That diet is the absolute pits. I lost 10 pounds in the two weeks between that phone call and the appointment with my GP when I couldn't stomach a single food or beverage outside of plain rice and water. Four months after that, I was awake for five days straight after someone suggested I wouldn't be able to sleep for the time being when we'd been discussing a big work presentation looming at the end of the week. By the end of the five days, I was in a wretched state and nearly collapsed the moment the presentation concluded as the delicious ability to sleep returned to flood my body. I did spend an extraordinary amount of time online during those five days, researching any possible explanation for what was happening to me, and all roads lead back to either epilepsy, OCD, advanced mental illness, or some type of sophisticated hypnotism. As disoriented as I was, I was quite sure that the call wasn't coming from inside the house and whatever force was acting upon me was coming from an external source. The sensation grew stronger every time he was summoned, and the best way to describe it is as if invisible threads would form in the space around me, then connect to my mind and body, and those threads could push and pull me to complete whatever task had been promised to the time being. I remember reading about the hypothetical and imperceptible dark matter that surrounds us, matter that cannot be conceived of by the human mind and so remains ever-present but completely invisible and undetectable. I felt like I was almost being absorbed by the dark matter, slowly consumed by something ancient and unceasing, while still clinging to the comfort and routine of normal life. I was on such high alert after the insomnia spell that the next time someone started to say the cursed phrase, I decided to simply try to stop them. For some reason, it had never occurred to me to interrupt someone as they mentioned the time being, but it seemed like the best recourse if I was going to hang on to any semblance of sanity. I was at dinner with Liz the next time he came up, and she brought up his name after I'd explained to her I'd been having back problems. I heard the T sound as it flicked off the tip of her tongue, and so opened my mouth to start to cut her off. And that was the first time he nudged me. The best way I can describe nudging is either gaining or losing two or three seconds of time, which doesn't sound like much, but you'd be surprised at how quickly the human body can complete an action and how much ground a person can cover in just two or three seconds. In the case of dinner with Liz, one second I'd been leaning across the table to retrieve a pitcher of water, and when I opened my mouth to interrupt what she was saying, time jumped forward for me by a few seconds and I was suddenly hovering over the table, having already grabbed the pitcher, and the sensation was so disorienting I fell back awkwardly and nearly dropped the entire pitcher on Liz's lap, but managed to soak my own instead. Jesus, Jamie, have another glass of wine, she scolded jokingly as I swiped at my jeans with my napkin. Anyway, I was saying that you should just try water aerobics for the time being. My great aunt took that 6am class at the Y and said it did wonders for her back after she threw it out. Liz was joking, of course, but that didn't matter to the time being. 
And I can confidently say that the only thing worse than near death by suffocation is waking up at 5.30 every morning for three months to bob around in cold water and the institutional glow of the pool at the YMCA. After that incident, I decided to take a break from work to give myself a chance to avoid anyone who might say the cursed phrase and to try to clear my head and make a plan for navigating the minefields that had become casual conversation. I'll be honest, there was a big part of me that wanted to try to figure out how to work from home and limit my social interactions to as few as possible, if any. My nerves were shot from the constant vigilance of hoping I wouldn't be forced into a totally disruptive and potentially deadly activity that was completely out of my control, and the only permanent solution I could think of was avoiding all people. But I only made it three days before the nudging got so bad, I had to succumb and head back out into the world for fear he'd nudge me hard enough I'd die alone in a pool of my own blood from a wound I'd unintentionally inflicted on myself. On the first day I was home alone, he nudged me as I was getting into the running shower and I ended up flat on my back with a lump on my head where I'd smacked it on the way down. On the second day, he nudged me while I was cutting a bagel and I'm surprised I didn't require stitches I cut myself so severely. Later that day, I decided to order in my lunch to avoid the perils of the kitchen and when the delivery person arrived, I greeted him at the top of my landing. The time being nudged me as I was stepping to take the bag from the delivery guy's hand and the innocent curry and I ended up in a heap on the landing below us covered in my chicken curry after we tumbled down the stairs together. On the third morning, he nudged me as I was opening my window and I quickly found myself dangling over the sill by my waist, staring at the cobblestone courtyard four stories beneath my tender face. It became clear that I was better off playing conversation roulette than I was attempting life alone. And so I begrudgingly rejoined the obstacle course that the world had become for me. It wasn't until he almost killed me for the second time that I started to understand his plans for me. As the days and months had gone by and the time being was called upon more and more, I could feel it becoming a part of me, or me of him, and, and, I, and I could feel the edges of my humanity starting to fray so that he could seep into my soft and floaty bits, the, the most elemental and vulnerable parts of my being. The night I almost died for the second time, I had been scheduled to travel out of town for work, but the meeting had been delayed at the last minute, so Jenna had called to let me know. So, yeah, just stay put for the time being and I'll sort it all out in the morning. Jenna had clucked as I was crossing the car park to get to my car, and as the call ended, I found myself frozen in place, in nothing but a medium-weight coat and dress shoes, in the vast emptiness surrounding my office plex in the middle of winter just as night had begun to fall. I was completely unable to move my feet, but did my best to keep myself warm by bobbing up and down at the knees and using my hands and arms to cover and rub my parts as they screamed for protection in the dropping temperatures. I did an okay job of keeping myself moving until around 3 or 4am when the cold finally took hold and my body started to shut down. My muscles constricted so violently that I fell to the cold pavement and I tried to shield myself from the frigid ground as best I could but I knew it was just a matter of time before I'd lose consciousness. As I lay on the icy black top with nothing but a few dim office lights for comfort, my life began to flash before my eyes. 
And as my personal timeline unraveled in near death, the cause for everything, including my suffering, was made known. One thing I'd noticed as I'd gotten older is how truncated time becomes as you've experienced more of it. Ten years is nothing when you've lived it four or five times and you realize just how close the beginning and end of life actually are. You start to perceive time as an arch that curves further in on itself the farther along you get rather than a straight line that we all travel along towards some vanishing point in the mortal horizon. The one thing I've never stopped doing, however, is not taking time for granted. There is no doubt that time has felt more precious as I've grown, and I've tried hard to be more present, but, but I've never shaken the human urge to think there's always more time. I now know that thinking we always have more time to reach a goal, or see a loved one, or wake up at the beginning of another day, is just another delusion humans cling to for survival. If we knew just how finite our time really is, we would live in a permanent state of fight or flight and couldn't enjoy the time we do have, and so the time being loses, no matter how you receive his gifts. We spend our whole lives cursing him and taking him for granted, and so he has grown resentful and lonely in the absence of any appreciation or acknowledgement for what he does for us. The time being gives endlessly during our younger years to facilitate our growth and development, but we repay him with impatience and boredom. In the middle years, we're so distracted by achievement that we barely give him a second thought, and when we do, it's to admonish him for not giving more when he's already given so much. And in the end, we either beg him to hurry up and end our time on the planet, or resent him for turning his back on us and cutting off our supply when we were just getting started. But why would he extend the life of someone who had spent the majority of it taking him for granted? Taking everything for granted, for that matter. The time being has been our greatest supporter, our most generous provider, has showered us with patience and perseverance and a fortitude we no longer deserve. He tries to teach us mercifully how meaningless and transient it is to be human and that time is the only thing that is real and infinite and ordered among the chaos. But we don't listen. We spend our lives cursing time, wasting time and even killing time. And so the time being has come to teach us a valuable lesson and to take us home where he will at least have companionship again. We've been free to exist in human form for so long that we have abandoned our elemental ancestors and lack reverence for the light, the seas, energy, and time. So time has led the charge to reclaim us, to remind us of our sacred origins, and the only path home is through suffering. I survived the freezing night in the car park, but only just barely. A custodian found me, deeply hypothermic, but somehow still alive, and they were able to save most of me, but precious parts were lost. As my unfocused eyes survey my newly abbreviated form, I reach a near-rapturous state as I truly experience life for the first time through my deconstruction. 
I am as much matter as I am air, as I am electricity, as I am flesh. And without this flesh, I am infinite. Once my ego has been obliterated, my mind ground into ephemera, and my body battered back to stardust, only then can I join the time being in his benevolent quest to preserve and perpetuate life in this unworthy and ingrateful universe. This story was written by Courtney Eck and narrated by Ben Chandler. For more stories that haunt, as well as a behind-the-scenes look at what we do and why we do it, you can join our Patreon at patreon slash pleaseleavepod. You can follow Please Leave on Facebook and Instagram at pleaseleavepod. Our email is pleaseleavepod at gmail.com. And our website is pleaseleavepod.com. This has been a Please Leave Media production.